0: James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. We're going to go through the book of James and on the next several Sunday mornings. And it is an incredible book. The theme verse of the book of James is found in James 1.22, If you want to peek ahead, it says, but prove yourselves, James 1.22, doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. People have said that James is from Missouri. He's from the show me state. He believes that if you are going to say that you have faith, then it should come out in your life. And a lot of The professing Christian church, I think especially in America, believes that if you fill out a medical form that says you're a Christian or you identify as a Christian, well, then that makes you a Christian. But that's not necessarily true. You need to be born again, of course, and you need to be born again from above. And then the fruits of the Holy Spirit will come out in your life. It's inevitable for every Christian that you are going to reflect who you belong to. You're going to do it imperfectly at times. We're all in a process of growth where we're born again to that living hope and then we need to grow just like a baby's born and grows. But we need to grow nonetheless. And James, in the book of James, is going to give us a very practical look at what faith does. Or if you want the big picture or the big idea, it's about living out your faith. James doesn't spend a lot of time on how you get saved. You could look at Galatians and Romans for that, James is more talking about what it looks like on a horizontal plane once you are saved. How will men and women, boys and girls, whoever you interact with on a normal weekly basis, know that you're a Christian? Well, it'll be by how you live. There's just no other way around it. And so James is going to just be one punch after another. Four, excuse me, five chapters of uh, incredible power-packed rubber meets the road Christianity. So each week that you come in here, get your seatbelt on because you're going to need it because James does not pull any punches. Who is James? He is the half-brother of Jesus. When we did the first study in the book of James, we said it must have been tough for James to grow up with a perfect brother. How many of you had a perfect brother, perfect sister? Why can't you? I mean, these are the parents that could say, why can't you be like your brother? And it would be totally true. What we do know about James is that James seems to have not believed in Jesus as his Messiah. You could imagine all the difficulties with that after, until after the resurrection. One of the resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15 was to James. And then James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Very powerful man in terms of his faith. He was called Old Camel Knees because of the amount of time that he prayed in the temple courts. He was known as James the Just. And he was a man who led the Jerusalem church. And um, he describes himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he became a servant of the Lord, but it took some time. Uh, Some have said about James that he was a bit of a late bloomer. And some of you who are in this room came to faith later in your life. And you may be a late bloomer and you're trying to make up for lost time. Imagine, you know, James's thoughts on that. How many times he must have reflected on he could have believed earlier. He could have trusted earlier, but it, but he had his challenges because it was his half-brother after all. So James, as he gets into the book, is talking to us about dealing with temptation. He's writing to a group of Jewish Christians who have been dispersed in what's called the diaspora because of uh, persecutions that happened to G, uh, Jewish people, because of different things, uh, perhaps even famines and the like. And a lot of these people ended up poor, impoverished because of their faith in Jesus. It wasn't popular to believe in the Messiah necessarily, being Jesus. Sometimes you became an outcast. Sometimes you were disfellowship, kicked out of your family. And a lot of the, these people, when they had to leave Jerusalem or go out to other lands, were not treated very well. And so they found themselves in a very tough spot, maybe with very little money, trying to hold on to their faith and and you know, going through a lot of persecution. And so James, right out of the gate, deals with this idea of trials. Uh, He says, "'Consider it all joy,' verse 2, chapter 1, "'brethren, when you encounter various trials, "'knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. "'Let endurance have its perfect result,' verse 4, "'that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing.'" From time to time, I'll share the New Living Translation because I think it says it well. Here's how verses 2 through 4 read. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. James 1.12, the verse that we looked at, we read together as we were standing. It says, Blessed is a man or a woman who perseveres under trial. The word blessed in Hebrew is esher. If you want to write it down, it would be E-S-H-A-R or A-S-H-A-R pronounced esher. Blessedness, according to Vines, is a state of prosperity, as when a superior bestows favor upon you. In the Hebrew word picture, literally, the Hebrew word asher or blessed means fire on the head or the chief fire. Dr. Seekin says the word means to lead straight, to bless, to be happy. Fire on the head can symbolize both the presence of God or facing the uncomfortable realities of life or both. So when we go through trials, we can feel like we have fire on our head. Sometimes in the modern way of putting it, we can say we are under the gun. I have so many stacks on my desk of paperwork. I have so much to do. I have so many pressures. Trials bring their own special fire in life. We feel like we're in the furnace, we might say. We feel like we're you know the heat has been turned up. And James knows that he's writing to a group of Christians who are in the fire. Literally, many of them are poor. Uh, If you study some history on this, it seems like there was a very few people who were considered middle class back in the first century. You were either poor and you're probably going to stay poor or you were wealthy. There was very few people considered middle class. And if there was a middle class, it quickly diminished. And so these people were poor. They were struggling with their faith. They were dealing with persecution. and, And James addresses them and says, hey, I got something for you. Here's the upside down kingdom. Here's a paradox, if you will. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Can you imagine being a person, maybe you're somewhere in Syria or you're going through some difficulty, you get James's letter and you're like, yeah, right. What do you mean, count it all joy? In freeway traffic, should I be singing? I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Should I call my spouse? And say, man, I'm just so joyful on the 91. Should we, you know, we're working on a project in the backyard. We hit our finger with a hammer and say, oh, praise God. Boom, 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 boom as the blood is splurting. No, that's ridiculous. In fact, some people would say, if you do that, you've lost some Marbles. James is not saying rejoice in the actual thing that's happening to you. He's more saying rejoice in the opportunity that trials bring. It, does, it The Bible's not saying you need to just sit there and giggle and laugh like those stupid cable commercials when someone sits on a, some gum or goes into a glass door or pops a soda can and it spills all over them or spills hot coffee on them and they're like... <laughs> No, 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 no. That's not what James is saying. That's silly. But James is saying, look a little deeper at the opportunity that the trials could bring. Trials ultimately become a training ground. If you're taking notes, trials become a training ground. They become an opportunity for growth like nothing else. When, you know, from a big picture standpoint, maybe some of you could really resonate with this. You know, when you, when, you, when you grow up, depending on how you grew up, but maybe more so in Southern California, I think our perception of life is that life should be a lot of smooth times with a couple of bumps in the road. How many of you have noticed that life is pretty much the opposite of that? Life is pretty much a lot of bumpy times with a few smooth times. That's what I'm discovering the more I get older. That's how life is. And so we have to get out of our minds that, you know, it's going to... I I should be having smooth sailing this week. Uh, Maybe not. Jesus said, in this world, here's a promise, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What? I have overcome the world. And so the Bible says we need to anticipate trouble. The good times, we should celebrate them, no doubt, But we shouldn't be shocked when trials come our way. In fact, trials are a unique opportunity to grow. I'm not just saying that. That's what James said. And that's what really life has shown most of us, that we grow the most in the deepest tests of life. But again, if I had a vote, I would not vote for trials I don't pray for trials. Anybody that does that, if I'm holding hands in a prayer circle, I release their hand. I don't want any of that coming my way. I do not say the amen. Lord, do not let any of that spill over to me. Hey, each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't pray for trials, okay? But inevitably, they're going to come your way. And so when they come, the question is how can you and I handle them better? They are going to come. You can take it to the bank. So what should you do when they come? How can you, in fact, experience a blessing when there's fire on your head, when things are tough, when life is hard? How can we consider it all joy? As we did the first message in this study in the book of James, I said we need to really reassess or recalculate How we think of trials. Instead of thinking trials of trials so negatively, we need to take a biblical worldview on trials. Not that we rejoice in the actual thing that's happening to us, but we rejoice at the opportunity that they bring. And so we might say something like this: Lord, I don't like what's happening to me, or I don't like what's happening to my loved one right now, but I know that you can take this trial and use it in my life to grow me deeper, to teach me perseverance to let me comfort others with the comfort with which I'm comforted by God. So give me wisdom. And the next section is what uh, James says to do next. He says, look, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. When you are going through a trial, it's a unique opportunity to seek God's wisdom. And God, verse 5, will give to you. He gives to all men generously. God is generous. He won't reproach you if you ask him. And you'll get the wisdom that you need. There is a qualifier, though, and many of you have read this before, that when you ask God, you need to ask in faith. And James says when you ask God, you can't be a double-minded or double-souled, literally, person who blows with the wind, and you haven't even decided if you want to be a Christian. You're, you're literally a fence sitter and you blow with the wind. And James says, if you're that kind of person, don't expect that you'll receive anything from the Lord. And the context is wisdom because you're not really looking for wisdom in, as it relates to the kingdom of God. You're probably looking more for a way out or God to be your emergency button in the tough time. And then you'll say, see you later, God, once he fixes it. That's not what God wants. God actually wants the wisdom that you ask for to be biblical wisdom that you go deeper in your roots with God. He wants it to be relational, not just emergency prayers, and then see you later, God. Because then you're a double-minded person. You haven't decided who you're going to follow. And I would imagine that this group of early believers... The early Christians were Jewish on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people came to the Lord. They were, some of them were probably tempted to give up. Some of them were probably saying, look, life would be much easier if I never made a public confession of faith in Jesus as Messiah. And there are people in other cultures today that could say the same. My life would be probably smoother with my family, my circumstances, my business, my ability to make money had I not made a profession of faith in Christ. In the United States, it's a little different. But in some countries, to make a profession of faith, you risk everything. And it really tests if you really want to follow Christ, if you really want to serve Him as your King and your Lord. So here we have now this idea of wisdom. Living out what we know about God, His Word, His will, and His ways. Some people have said the book of James is the New Testament book of Proverbs. James is really saying, if you want to be wise, wisdom has been defined as the application of what? Knowledge. Wisdom is to know God, his will and his ways, and do it. That's what James is about. So James says, if you want that kind of wisdom, if you actually want to know how you can go deeper with God to live out your faith, to be a doer of the word, and not merely a hearer who deludes yourself, then tune in and God will give it to you and he'll be generous. He'll pour out the wisdom that you need in your circumstances. James gives an example. He says, verse nine, but let the brother of humble circumstances, that would be considered a poor person, the lowly brother, ESV, believers who are poor, New Living Translation, glory in his high position. James two five. flip over there for a second. James 2.5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, 2.5, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James addresses this poor group of people, and he says, look, going back to the earlier verses, verse 4 especially, or verse, uh, excuse me, two and 2 through 4, considering it all joy, now he addresses a specific case the brother of humble circumstances, verse 9, the lowly brother, the the poor person, which probably was the bulk of these believers. And some of them may have been wealthy and lost their land, as the book of Hebrews talks about, their estates, their wealth, because of their decision to follow Christ. So they may have gone from rich to poor. And when you are poor, you're in a tough spot. Just trying to scrap for a daily meal. Just trying to pay the next bill. Uh, many of you can relate to that. And, and, and of course, you know, in America, we're, even if we're not doing great, if we have change in a jar somewhere, if we have money somewhere in the bank, we're in the top 5% of worldly wealth in the entire world. If you have change in a in something, you have a little piggy bank, you have some money somewhere, you're in the top 5% of worldly wealth. So I think for Americans, it may be even harder for us to understand the daily plight. Some of you may understand this more than others, but here's what James is saying. He's saying, look, if you're poor, glory, end of verse 9, in your high position, God honors the poor because they are in a unique position. Think of the context and the flow of the verses to depend upon God because they're the poor are really in a daily trial. Amen. Amen. They don't know where the next meal's coming from. So they're especially in a position, call it in a daily test, to trust God for their daily bread. The poor man is actually in an exalted position in the upside-down kingdom, in the paradoxical world of the Bible, if you will, because now the poor man has to rely upon God for his daily sustenance. Every day he's training. So you may have met someone over the years who has learned to rely upon God for every little thing that you don't necessarily have to. And they're probably one of the more mature believers you're ever going to meet because they have learned to trust God. And a lot of us who are Americans, I'm not putting us down, we're in a very privileged position, but we don't have to trust God We can get in our car and go to Del Taco. We can we can think about where do we want to eat? What are we going to wear? Do you want to go shopping tonight? We're not in that position necessarily to pray for our next meal with nothing in the cupboard, but the poor man is. And so James, remember, he's coming at it from a different perspective than the world, is saying, hey, rejoice in that because that puts you in a unique position to rely upon God and to go deeper with him. So consider that all joy. I know it's not the way we normally think. In Luke 6, 20 and 21, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And so many times in the Bible, God talks about his heart for the poor, to leave the edges of the field for the poor, to make sure that you're taking care of the orphan and the widow, because that's God's heart. And when we do things like that, when we help Royal Family and Kids Camp, when we, some of you have adopted children, and you do things like that, you you take a moment to help somebody, that's God's wisdom. That's the upside-down kingdom that you serve. If you want to write down 1 Samuel 2, verses 2 through 8, in Hannah's song, and Also in Mary's Magnificat in the book of Luke, they both celebrate God's love for the poor and how God has magnified the poor. And the rich are in contrast. The Lord makes the poor and rich. He brings low and he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, says Hannah in her beautiful song. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Now, verse 10, it, it's been debated. Some think verse 10 is about unbelieving wealthy people. Some believe it's about believing rich people. Um, the, the congregation could have had both, but let's, let's take a look at verse 10. It says, And let the rich man glory in his humiliation. Let him glory that God has humbled him because like flowering grass, he will pass away. Now, the rich man's tendency would be to depend on his wealth because he has everything he needs. Remember the the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher. And in the dialogue, Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me and you'll have treasures in heaven. Do you remember what the rich young ruler did? His face fell And he walked away sorrowfully because he had many possessions. And then Jesus said, how difficult it is for what? A rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, my wife sews and she's a wonderful artist and she can sew and she does incredible things. And she has great patience with little things. Have you ever, any of you tried to thread a needle with with just, I'm not good at it. I confess it. I don't have the patience. And usually I start to get the shakes when I'm, I don't know why, but I'm trying to get that. Can you imagine trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle? That, that sounds pretty hard. And by the way, I don't even want to touch a camel, let alone try to push them through the eye of a needle. Right? They'll spit at you. They're not clean animals. Anyway. And then the disciples said, because they had a view on wealth, that the wealthy were blessed by God, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I have, uh, over the years, I've had some people who were successful and then they, they hit some rough times. They were wealthy, well to do, and then, Something happened and they lost some of their worldly wealth. And they would honestly tell you, I think if they were up here, that God did a work during that season that they they couldn't see. Now these these would be, this category I'm talking about would be a follower of Christ who's very wealthy and then maybe lost some of that or something happened and they were in a unique position to take a look at what they were really trusting in. The wealthy man... If he's humbled by God, if she's humbled by God, a wealthy woman has a unique opportunity to glory in that humbling. And sometimes that's what God does. One by one, says one writer, God took them from me, all things I valued most, till I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highway, grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. And I turned my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. Now, I think that it's not the riches that are the issue. It's whether the riches have you. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money or mammon. If you have those things in order and you're well to do, praise God. That's what we need to do, be doing. We need to be ready to share. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19, write it down for your notes. It says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, the wealthy, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. James talked about a crown of life. And Paul tells Timothy that the wealthy in the congregation, they're blessed, but let them be ready to share. Imagine if you were part of a diaspora. You disperse from, let's say, Jerusalem, Uh, in the uh, middle of the first century and you're going out and you have all these poor brothers and sisters with you and you have money and they don't. And imagine that their lives are now falling apart. Daily food is difficult and you're a wealthy person still in that midst. Imagine the challenge that you would have to give away what you have instead of being selfish. Tough, isn't it? Because money is not the problem. Money is not the root of all evil. It's what? The love of money. And I think that this early congregation was struggling with their identity in Christ and, hey, if I'm really serious about my faith, then my hands will be open to the Lord to let him put in and take out as he would will. As Moses put it in Psalm 90, the days of our life contain 70 years or of due strength 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. And for soon it is gone and we fly away. And so teach us earlier in the psalm, Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you, Lord, a heart of wisdom. You are not going to take it with you. You're not. Some of you think you are. Just that one little thing. I'll I'll tell them to put it in my pocket, in my casket. It ain't going with you. Whatever you have now, you are going to leave here. And then you don't know what the next generation is going to do with it. So be wise. The Bible does encourage the plan for the future, to save money, to take care of your family, no doubt. But don't put too, so much stock in that which is not going to last. This stuff, according to 2 Peter, is all going to burn. And there will be new heavens and a new earth. And the Bible says you can take that to the bank. For the sun, verse 11, James 1, rises with a scorching wind. In the in Jerusalem, or in Israel, this was called a shirako, a scorching hot wind. And it withers the grass. Its flower falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Uh, we found out that a neighbor who's lived behind us for the last 22 years just recently passed away, and we didn't even know until we saw a sign for an estate sale. And then we got word that the owner of the house that lived right behind us, we, we had a relationship with them through Little League, um, he's gone. Um, the Bible says in the midst of one's pursuits, people just Die. A lot of people don't plan, you know, a car accident or a heart attack. Sometimes just in the midst of doing stuff, people die. A deathbed experience is not a guarantee. And James paints this picture of the Scirocco. We would say the Santa Anas. How many of you don't like the Santa Ana winds? Man, they're they're a bummer because it gets hot and then the wind blows. And I've got some, uh, we've, we've got some flowers in our home that... Um, they bloom when the sun's out and then they bow when the sun's not doing well. And I have had the practice because my beautiful wife deserves flowers and I, I'm i going to say it. Her nickname for me is roses because <laughs> she's like a beautiful rose. So I regularly get her roses. Well, those roses inevitably, we put them in a vase and they start drooping. Right? And then I have to replenish the roses. Can I give you guys, gentlemen, tune in for a second. Can I give you a word of wisdom? Buy your wife flowers. Even if she is super practical and she knows they're only going to last a week and a half or two, still buy them. She does like it. This is just a free piece of advice. It wasn't even in my notes. Just for you guys, all right? Life is this way. You know, we we hear of this blight of cancer. Cancer, cancer, cancer. And we're we're like, what is going on with cancer? I I don't know. But in the midst of one's pursuits, and somebody could have a, a plan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work this career, I'm gonna do this, I'll retire in in this area. Hey, look. Life doesn't guarantee you that. If you get that, thank God. But you don't have that guarantee. And so James says, look, the sun rises and the Chiraco, the Santa Anna's come. And he's quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice calls out. If you want to write this down, Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. A voice calls out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord, what does it do? It stands forever. This life is temporary. And James is trying to encourage a group of downcast believers to hang in there because the eternal kingdom is what's really going to last. And so he's trying to give them what we might consider uh, what we would call biblical wisdom. Jesus told a story about being beware of every form of greed. And he told about a landowner who stuff was very productive. And he said to himself, I'm going to build bigger things and I'll do this and that. And then the word comes back from God that tonight your soul will be required of you. I, I did two memorial services in the last couple of days. One thing I didn't anticipate going into the ministry is how much I would have to deal with the death issue, to walk families through it, to address crowds at memorial services, a mixed multitude. I often don't know who's a believer and who's not. Sometimes when I'm quoting scripture, I can tell the believers because they smile and they're quoting the scripture with me. I did a memorial service a few days back, and every verse I quoted, I saw a lady who locked eyes with me, and she was quoting the verses with me. I am the way, the truth. And her smile was getting bigger, and I was going, that's a sister in Christ. Thank you, Lord. There's always believers out there. But then there's others out there that are doing what we call the bulletin shuffle. (laughs) When's this thing going to be over? When's he going to be quiet? It's my unique opportunity to preach to unbelievers. And you know what I say to unbelievers? And it always shocks them. I say, you know, the statistics on death are quite impressive. (laughs) And then they start to laugh. Because they get where I'm going. One out of every one of you is going to die. (gasps) What's true, the statistics are impressive. I mean, right? Unless you're here when the Lord returns... You're going to face your own mortality and the only question that's going to matter on that day is do you know the Lord because one day the the flower will droop as strong as we can be in life. We're not made to last because of the curse. John Wesley said, I'm a creature of, of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit coming from God and returning to God just hovering over the great gulf a few months hence and I am no more seen. I drop Into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, says Wesley. I want to know the way to heaven. How many people play Russian roulette with their soul? Why would you do that? The most valuable thing you have is your soul. Why would you, even if you gained the whole world, why would you forfeit your soul? That's just silly. Casting Crowns put it this way in a modern song. I'm a flower quickly fading. Here today, gone tomorrow. And so James says, blessed is a man. Blessed is a person who perseveres under trial. Take a look at the NIV if you have it. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Same Greek word as trial. For when he has been approved or when he's been tested and passes the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What is the crown of life? Simply this. It is eternal life. It is is the gift of God. The crown is a Stephanos, and it, it has the idea of an athlete's wreath of flowers that they would get for winning the race but ultimately, the crown of life is still simply eternal life that the Lord will give to anybody who, what? Loves him. If you love God, you get the crown. But here, the believer is encouraged to hang in there through the difficulty, knowing that a reward of eternal life is granted by grace, but is also coming to those who hang in there with hope. In Revelation 2 Let's turn over there for a second. Revelation 2, just a few pages to your right. Look at verse 9. Revelation 2, verse 9 says, To the church at Smyrna, a persecuted church, I know your tribulation, 2-9 of Revelation, your poverty, but you are rich. The blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear... What you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be what? Tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you what? I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, and I believe every believer will overcome, shall not be hurt by the second death. And the second death is spiritual death. It's the lake of fire. It's hell. And the believer will not be hurt by the second death. And so we're encouraged to hang in there. Go back to the book of James. And so we go through this life, and we have tests. And we would all like to think that in the tests we would obey the book of James and say, hey, even though things are tough, I'm counting it all joy. Have you ever said that to somebody? Man, somebody might say to you, what's the Lord allowing in your life? What's going on? I don't know, but I'm, I've considered it. I've put it to the category of an asset and not a deficit. I've recalculated my trials. I'm now considering them all joy. Anybody? No? You're like, Just not that spiritual, Pastor Michael. <laughs> hey, I'm with you. This is a hard category. In fact, trials... While they bring a unique opportunity for growth, also bring a unique opportunity for pessimism, a unique opportunity to retreat. In fact, they bring a unique opportunity to fall into sin. Here's why. Because when I'm faced with a trial and I don't get it and I don't understand it and the fire is coming, many people in the church... Go to something that can give them a temporal respite, i.e. a temptation that will make me feel better. It could be pornography. It could be food. It could be binge-watching television. It could be frozen. No, frozen yogurt does not. No, frozen yogurt, (laughs) strike that from the record, is not sinful. Get your frozen yogurt. It's good. It's, it's, anyway. Anyway. But we can have all of these things, right, that we go to. Instead of going to God, we go to that comfort thing. And in fact, some people, and this is what the book of James teaches, who are going through a trial say something like this. I am being tempted by God. God's doing this to me. What did I do to deserve this? Sometimes people who are in the church, let's face it, they shake their fist at God or maybe internally they say, Lord, I'm angry because I believe you're doing this to me. And James says, let no one say, and James may have heard that the believers were saying this. Maybe he heard that this was going on, that people were saying this in some of their meetings. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Don't say that, James says. Some of you know that there are stories in the Bible where God seems to at least minimally allow temptation. The book of Job is a good example. Satan comes to God and God brings up Job and it ends up that the book of Job is about God allowing Satan to get at Job. In Luke 2.31, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Satan's been demanding permission to sift you as wheat. In 2 Samuel 24, a bit of a problematic passage because 1 Chronicles 21 says Satan did it, inspired David to count the people, and it caused a big problem. And in 2 Samuel 24, it says God did it. Is it God or Satan. Well, ultimately, no temptation will come your way unless God allows it, right? I would imagine that for some people in the world, Satan is constantly demanding permission to destroy them. And the book of Job reveals that God had a hedge about Job. So in God's sovereignty of running the universe... He often uses Satan as a tool. He might allow Satan to do something, but God does not tempt anybody. The tempter does that, Satan does that. But God is ultimately still on the throne, which should make us breathe a little bit easier. But still, when Satan comes with a temptation, here's the deal the deal is your response. The ball, if I use a tennis analogy, gets hit to us in temptation, and then we decide what we're going to do with it. We can hit it back, or we can let it pass by us, or we can say, I can't get to that one. That's pretty much where I'm at now with bad knees, right? And so we are in a position where we now have to kind of wrestle with some theological realities. What is our worldview in the midst of temptation? Do we shake our fist at God? Do we say, it's your fault? What are you doing to me? You did this to me. We are pretty good at playing the blame game. Jesus was impelled by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, but not to fail the test to what? To succeed and prove that he's the Son of God. But the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, compelled Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. To be what? To be victorious over the temptation. God doesn't want you to fail. But sometimes He allows Satan maybe a little extra wiggle room in your life so that you might take a stand against the wiles of the devil. This is my understanding of how the Scripture uh, teaches this. And so in these times, they bring up, A test from God, and often a test from God, becomes a temptation by Satan. And sometimes in our weakness, and I'll confess to you, there's been many times when I have not handled temptation well, we've gone the other way. Instead of counting it all joy and rooting ourselves in God and asking Him for wisdom and staying the course, and 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, taking the way of escape, we blame. Book of Genesis, Adam, where are you? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat? I was afraid. I heard your voice. I'm hiding here. I was ashamed because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree? The woman that you gave me. (laughs) And all the men said, don't even respond, men. The, The woman, she gave it to me and I ate. And the woman said, The serpent! He beguiled me. And the serpent looked and he didn't have a leg to stand on. And he, there was no. We are so good at the blame shift. We can see it in our children. The lamp gets broken. Who broke the lamp? He did it. He did it. He did it. The dog sitting there, he did it. <laughs> dog can't protect himself, you know. We are so good at shifting blame, and people every day blame God. In fact, wouldn't you, if you think about it for a second, wouldn't you say that more people than you could probably imagine are mad at God or blame God or curse God? How many times a day do people take the name of Jesus in vain? Scary. And James says, look, when you're going through a temptation... Don't say, don't you say, God's tempting me. God doesn't tempt anyone. In fact, just the opposite. God, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, provides a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, then what's the deal with temptation? Last few verses. Each one, verse 14, James 1, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by what? His own lust. Now, the word for lust here is a word that could mean good or bad. Most of the time, I think, every time I can think of in the New Testament, it's a longing for what is forbidden. Each one of us, when we're tempted, each one when he is tempted, is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The problem is not without. The problem is not God. The problem is the one you look at in the mirror every day. Now, James is going to tell us later that the devil also tempts people. So he's not ignoring that, but right now he's focusing on us. And he's saying, look, a lot of the problem is us. This is hunting and fishing terminology, and hence we have the the shot up here. Because fishermen, what they do to lure a fish is they use something that's attractive to them to entice them to chomp on the lure. That's why it's called a lure, to lure them. And so they might put a worm on the end of a hook or they might put a colorful thing that looks like something that the fish can eat and the fish will leave its lair or leave its place of safety. And it, it just becomes enraptured with that morsel. And so it starts swimming after it. This is what happens to us with temptation. It's not like we become unbelievers when we're tempted, but we lose our focus. We forget about God and our lusts overwhelm us. And let's face it, let's be real this morning. The first bite of a temptation, you, you're tempted. And look, temptation by definition is tempting. If it wasn't, you wouldn't care about it. But imagine you're that fish and you see something tempting and you, you're chasing it, right? And there you are, you get, you're just fish-eyed, right? Right? And you, you, you bite it. And at first, it's, got, it's a tasty morsel, That's how sin is. Sin's fun for a season. But what you don't realize is that you're on a hook. You've been hooked. Temptation is not going to be something you don't care about because you wouldn't be tempted by it. It's going to be something that looks good to you. Something that if you took a bite, it would be a tasty morsel. And often it is. Often the first bite tastes good until you realize you got a hook in your mouth. And what do you do then? What what's the what if you're that fish on the end of the hook? What if you would admit this morning, man, I, I've been hooked? You know, that's the terminology we use for people who are addicted to something. They're hooked on drugs, hooked on pornography, hooked on this or that. What do you do now? Can I say to you, it's still not too late. How about you become the one that got away? How about you fight Even if you have given into something and a hook has to be taken out of your mouth, how about you become that fish that got away? How about you say, you know what? I'm not going back there. I'm going to ground myself in the truth. I'm going to be the one that got away. The way an Eskimo kills a wolf is grisly, yet instructive about temptation and sin. First, the Eskimo coats his knife with with animal blood. He allows the whole thing to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the the fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks blade in the arctic night so great becomes a craving for blood the wolf does not notice that the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue he doesn't notice it nor does he recognize uh, the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood his carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow hunting and fishing Terminology: The bear sees the meat hanging there. He's got to have it. So he goes to get it and he steps in the trap. This is the imagery James uses. He says, look, if you want to understand this and you want to overcome it, it's what draws you away is your own lust. And you get hooked. And so the final verse is 15. It says, and then when lust has conceived... You can think of, it's kind of the birthing process here that's uses the image. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, what does it do? It brings forth death. Here's the progression of temptation. The lure is put there. There's a conception of the act. Then the bite is taken. And then if you are the fish dangling on the end of that uh, hook and the fisherman brings you into the boat, you have become dinner. Now, it didn't start that way. No, nobody who ends up hooked and being dinner for the devil started off by thinking, you know, today I think I'll take the bait and ruin my life. No. But you need to be aware that this is the way it works so that when the lure comes your way, you can say, aha, God, give me wisdom. Lord, help me to take the way of escape. I, I understand what this is. And look, my, if you're going to be honest, you could even say that my flesh is totally, you got to bring God into the temptation. You have to say, Lord, my flesh wants this, but I know it's not good for me. It's not what you want. I know what's going to happen if I chomp on this. So I'm not going to swim after it. I'm not going there. I know what the end will be. It'll taste good for a moment, but there's a hook in it. How many of you have gotten hooked enough times to say, I don't want to do that anymore. It's a pretty painful process to try to take that out and survive it. That's what James is saying. He's saying, look, take the way of escape. Grow up in your faith and don't let... uh, The things in your life, like temptation and lust, grow up. Cut them off. Don't give them a place. Know your sinful passions. Watch over your heart. Don't swim in dangerous waters, in toxic ponds. Protect your mind with the Word of God. Don't take for granted that one day without Bible reading, you're good. You need the Word of God to keep you strong. Ask for perseverance and wisdom. Ask the Father to help you when you feel weak. Bring Him into it. Think about where the, these lures have led you in the past and don't go there again. And say, Lord, what do you want to teach me instead? How do you want to make me stronger so I can be set free from the hook of sin and be busy about your business? That's what James is saying. Well, Father, we thank you so much for your word. It is very practical and hard-hitting, but we need it, Lord, desperately. And while all of us could say we failed and we thank you for your grace when we have, we want to we be better. We want to be stronger. And I realize that even after a message like this, man, one of the first things that we might face is a temptation when we leave this place. But help us not to be merely a hearer of the word, but a doer. Let us take what we learn in Scripture and apply it. That's what James is telling us. That's the the big idea of the book of James. And so we have heard a message on temptation. And Lord, the next time we face it, and we're gonna, and it may even happen today, help us take the way of escape, that we may be able to endure it. Every temptation we face is common to all of us, Lord. We all have our own peculiar weaknesses, but temptation happens to all of us. That's not the issue per se. The issue is that we take the way of escape. We go your way instead of the world's way. We go your way instead of the way of the flesh. We go your way instead of the devil's way. So help us, Lord, because we need all the help we can get in this area. And I'm going to ask you to keep your heart bowed before the Lord. If you've not met Jesus as your Savior, man, you're you're swimming in dangerous waters and you don't have his covering. So ask him to save you right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I believe in your death on the cross. Pray it if it's you right now. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. I don't want to spend another day without you. Save me. Maybe you're a person who's been hooked. And you're wondering if there's a way out. There is. He is the way out. He is the way. If you're a believer here, maybe you need to do some business with God. And and maybe there's something that's got you hooked. And you want to get off of that. You want to get rid of it. You want to get the hook out. And you want things to be better. You want to swim free again. Just cry out to him and say, Lord, do some business with him. Leave that thing at his feet. Forsake it. Repent of it. And Lord, for all of those who are one day at a time trying to walk strong and hearing the message of the book of James, help us, Lord. We're, we're probably leaving a message like this today just going to have to be extra sensitive to how the enemy might come at us, how our flesh might just uh, come up all of a sudden. And just give us wisdom to think ahead, to be prepared, to be wise. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.